chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Bear with me a little tonight. I've got this cold. It's hanging on very stubbornly. Galatians chapter 6. Going to begin at verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. Galatians 6, verse 11. You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Title of the message tonight, simply pleasing God or man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your precious word tonight. Thank you for its truths. And I pray as we look in the word of God that we examine our hearts before you tonight and allow you to speak to us and encourage us and challenge us. And may you be glorified. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pleasing God or man. You know, you're either pleasing one or the other, excuse me. But what happens when you try to please both? You know, it's like trying to fight a war and being on both sides. Both sides hate you. Um, Although God never hates us. But but anyway, I I noticed three things here tonight as we consider this. The first of all, the fallacy of situation ethics. The fullness of a crucified life and the fairness of God's rule. All right, so first of all, the fallacy of situation ethics. And situation ethics is described as the doctrine of flexibility in the application of moral laws according to circumstances. So in other words, the circumstances can dictate our conduct. So, you know, and people use verses... They'll, they, they'll, people will use the Bible to try and promote this idea. They said, Paul said that to the Romans, he became a Roman. To the Jew, he became a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile. I am all things to all men, that I might by all means win some. But then he said, but not without law to Christ. You know, Brother Forney has spoken about this, about um, yeah, in cross-culture evangelism, you know, that if, if when you when you go to a foreign field as a missionary, many times there's thing in the culture of a foreign field that is that goes contrary to the word of God, and you must confront that. But if they have a cult, something cultural that we wouldn't we wouldn't consider normal, or we wouldn't practice or do here in the states, but as long as it don't contradict the word of God, you know, it's fine. We're not there to Americanize. 
um, foreigners, but they're to make them Christians. And that's really what Paul was saying when he said, but I, I, I um, become all things to all men. You know, so he wasn't saying that I compromise the truths of the word of God to fit, you know, whatever people it would or to, or seek to please men. Um, and, and it is obvious from his writing here that this this uh, um, desire on these what, what he called Judaizers was obvious that they this was to please men. Because he says, even themselves, they do not keep the law of God. If you notice in verse, verse um, 13, for they themselves who are circumcised keep, uh, neither themselves are who are circumcised to keep the law, but desire have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. And it says that, that, that the word constrain here, one commentary said this, the word constrain is an important word. You know, there was nothing wrong with a Gentile being circumcised. There's nothing wrong with that. However, to compel one to be circumcised, saying that he could not be right with God if he was not, is wrong. And that's the issue here. That is the issue. So, so as we think about this, um, and from reading this, uh, particularly in verse 12, the circumcision here was being pushed to avoid being persecuted. Notice verse 12 again. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And the idea here is that, hey, so there was an advantage. There was a physical advantage to being circumcised. You could avoid being ostracized, persecuted, Think about it. To, to gain acceptance by friends or associates or fellow Jews if you got circumcised. You know, some of the people that, that uh, persecuted the, the early church, the first church in Jerusalem, were Jews. Were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those that, that crucified Christ. They persecuted the church. And so uh, to gain acceptance or to be try and earn some favor to avoid being persecuted, these, these people push circumcision. Well, yeah, it's okay to trust Christ, but you need to be circumcised too. You know, in fact, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, this was the contention Paul had with Peter. Chapter 2, verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews assembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So, you know, it, so here you have this, this pressure from the Jews uh, to be circumcised, to appease or gain favor with uh, those in Jerusalem, uh, the Jews or the, those at the temple. The sad thing is these Jews who were teaching this claim to be Christians. They claim to be Christians. Do you know what Paul called them? Galatians 
He said they are false brethren brought in unawares. That's what he called them. False brethren. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we, we try, in, in trying to find favor and, and please people, you know, especially there's pressure from friends or associates to go along with certain things that contradict the word of God, and they pressure us to do those things. And there, there is this great pressure. In fact, most commentators don't kind of gloss over this, but uh, I believe Paul succumbed to that pressure eventually. Go to Acts chapter 21. <clears throat> but, and uh, I'm not alone in this, and I'm sure there's many others that believe, that agree with this, but, but, uh, I had an old preacher friend say, well, you shouldn't, shouldn't criticize Paul. He was a man. He was a man, just like the rest of us. But in Acts chapter 21, verse 18, And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. Now James was now the pastor at the church of Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. When they had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. When, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And here's where the trouble starts. And said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which, are which believe, and here's the problem. And they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither walk after the customs. Now, is that accusation true? Yes, yeah, true. Paul told, taught the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be circumcised. Circumcision availeth nothing but a new creature in Christ. So yes, Paul taught that. What is it therefore, verse 22? The multitude must needs come together, for they, hear, they will hear that thou art come. Do this therefore, uh, do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them, and be at charge of them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So even though, even though James and the elders agreed with Paul to appease and please and try and, uh, you know, make some peace with the Jews who were all zealous of the law and zealous of circumcision, they concocted this scheme make it look like oh Paul was zealous of the law still <coughs> of course it didn't work it never does it didn't work and of course you know uh, the, going on down reading on do, down to the chapter there they have him arrested and and uh, want to go back to kill him so so there is there is this push uh, and again, you see the fallacy of this in, in Paul's the account of Paul there to gain acceptance from friends or associate, and, and you know people fall to situation ethics for that reason. Uh, they also do it to gain acceptance from the world. Now, think about it, not only with the Jews, but from the Romans. And uh, when Paul was giving his testimony in Acts chapter twenty-eight. Uh, it, or no, he was speaking to the the Christians at Rome or the Jews at Rome. I think it was the Jews at Rome. They said, 
<coughs> but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So all over the Roman world, Christianity has been spoken against. However, according to one commentary, Morris said this, To advocate circumcision was to align the new movement with Judaism, a religion that had official Roman sanction, and therefore one that avoided persecution. The preachers Paul was opposing may have included the cross in their proclamation, but by adding the necessity of circumcision, they avoided persecution. Unquote. So, so if you will get circumcised, then you will be, have, be of a part of the religion that is sanctioned by the Romans, which Christianity did not have that. So, to gain acceptance from the world, they were, again, uh, constrained or compelled to go along with this circumcision. Well, the third thing we, reason people follow this situation I think, is to make ourselves acceptable to others. And really, it's, when we do that, it's pleasing self. We do that for ourselves. Notice verse 12 says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution of the cross of Christ. So these Judaizers were doing it to help themselves, to make themselves look good, so that they could say, yeah, see, 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 you know, this is our fruit. This is, these are our uh, converts, our proselytes. So they get glory in your flesh, verse 13 says. And they desire to make a, a fair show. Of course, you know, Paul, when he wrote to the church of Corinth, said, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Somebody said this, or if, you are, if you go about trying to please everyone, there's going to be endless struggles. Uh you're living to le living to please everyone will leave you frustrated, distraught, mistrusted, and hated. Because you cannot please everyone. You know, it's This one article, it was a, I think a psychi psychologist said this. People pleasing isn't inherently a bad thing. It's healthy to want to please your family, your supervisors. But there are times when your desire to please others can become problematic. Here are five signs that your efforts to be a people pleaser have become unhealthy. You can't say no. Or you struggle to make decisions. Or you don't ask for help. Or you aren't living according to your values. You know, a lot of people don't live according to the values because they want to please other people. Or you don't set healthy boundaries. Um, so, you know, living to please or, fo or following the fallacy of situation ethics or whatever the circumstances dictate lives, leads to an inconsistent life. A life of continual 
struggles. It never results in the intended fruit. As was in Paul's case in Acts chapter 21, where it was to appease the Jews at Jerusalem in the temple. It didn't work. What you notice, secondly, the fullness of a crucified life. In verses 15, 14 and 15, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Spurgeon said this, and I quote, What did he mean, however, by the cross? Of course he cared nothing for the particular piece of wood to which those blessed hands and feet were nailed, for that was mere materialism and has perished out of mind. He means the glorious doctrine of justification, free justification through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, unquote. And I draw down here three things as we think about what it means to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, practically. It means, first of all, to be dead to self-will. Dead to self-will. Galatians 2.20 For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which now I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I am under an authority not my own. Andrew's dad, when he was here the last time, was telling me of a uh, missionary he knew, and I think he was a missionary in South America for quite a number of years, and then his health became where he couldn't stay on the field, and he came home, and he became a mission field director or something, and then uh, he finally uh, resigned from that, and he he, uh, I guess he moved to back to, uh, to Illinois somewhere around Chicago area, I think, and was working at a church or trying to start a church or something. Anyway, this man uh, went to, went to a Walmart, and he got out of his car, put his keys in his pocket, and didn't go very far, and he was accosted by this big black fella and pulled out a gun and said, Give me your keys, old man. And he said, he said I'm sorry, sir. That's not my car. God gave me that car. And I can't give you what God has given me. And he, started, he just started to witness to him. And he said, you don't understand. Give me your keys, old man. And he repeated and just continued to witness to him. And, uh, and finally, the, the, old, the old guy said, you gave him some gospel track. The guy started, eventually put his gun down. And, and he gave him some gospel tract, and he said, let me give you a hug. And the, the man said, I'll just forget it, and walked away. And that takes a lot of nerve, or a lot of grace, one or the other. But what he was saying is true. I'm not my own authority. God gave me that car. I can't just give it to anybody who wants it. See, my life is not my own. My choices I make are directed by the Lord. You know, Joshua 
directed the children of Israel, but who directed Joshua? Now, Joshua wasn't a robot. He didn't have to do. But he desired to do what the Lord commanded him. But he was under an authority. And that was the Lord, the authority of God. He had, he had the, uh, uh, the captain of the Lord of hosts directing him. Joshua chapter 5 talks about that. You know, somebody say, well, I'm not having anyone rule over me. Somebody said, you just relieved the Lord of an awful responsibility. But, you know, glorying in the cross for Lord Jesus Christ and being crucified unto it means dead to self-will. It also means that I'm dead to the world or friends. They have no control in my life. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In Colossians 2.20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments, and that word rudiments means principles, the philosophies, the principles of this world, so from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? And then in Colossians um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth, for ye are dead. And the idea here is to be reckon yourself dead. Ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So, you know, being dead to the world means the world doesn't have control over me. They don't determine what I do or don't do. One commentator said, Paul and the world agreed on one thing. Neither one cared for the other or cared about the other. And that's really the way we should be. Not that we don't care for people, but we don't care what the world says. We're not concerned about what the world says. Third thing here, and to me this is a, this is a, um, a pleasant one, being uh, crucified with Christ means I only have one master. That's the Lord Jesus. Think about it. If you're trying to please the world and you're trying to please yourself, you're going to be trying to please. You're going to have a lot of different masters. Do you ever have two bosses that don't agree? You know, I worked for a company for a little while, not very long. The executive, I went to pump out a grease trap, and the guy argued about the price. I said, I'm sorry. That's how much it's supposed to be. He said, well, can't you give me, give me so-and-so's phone number? He wanted the phone number of the executive vice president of the company who arranged to have the grease trap pumped out, and I wouldn't give it to him. So he went in his office and looked it up and found it and called him. And he consented to have me, told me to go ahead and pump it out for less amount of money. And when I got, talked to the secretary at the office, 
I got chewed out. I said, well, so-and-so said, well, I don't care what so-and-so says. I didn't work there very long. They had some real problems. You know, work, having, having two, ma two masters is difficult. You know, Jesus said several times, you cannot serve God and mammon. Words, you can't serve two masters. The blessed thing of having a crucified life is we only have one. John 13, 13, Jesus said, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Matthew 23, 8, But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And then verse 10, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So the blessing of having a, a crucified life is, we only have one master. We don't have to concern ourselves or worry ourselves with what the world or friends think. We, have, we are just simply follow what the Lord says. And, 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 and really, if we live to please the Lord, we'll have the praise of them that matter. Spurgeon said this, quote, To live to serve men is one thing, to live to bless them is another, and this we will do, God helping us, making sacrifices for their good. But to fear men, to ask their leave or think, to ask their instructions as to what we shall speak or how we shall say it, that is a baseness we cannot brook. By the grace of God, we have not so degraded ourselves and never shall, unquote. So we need to understand the fullness of a crucified life. And then thirdly, the fairness of God's rule. Verse 16 says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now the word rule here is not, we're not talking about like government rule. It's the idea of a measuring. Uh, of, a, of a measuring. Uh, one commentator said the carpenter or surveyor's line by which a direction is taken. There is a rule for the Christian life revealed by God's word. We don't just make it up as we go along. We're to measure ourselves according to this rule. You ever play a game where you kind of made up the rules as you go? Those usually don't go very well. You know, I've played games too where, you know, we, we had we had we had rules and then somebody else that we never played with before said, oh, no, 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 those rules aren't right. And, well, that doesn't really go too well either. Uh, no, you need to know what the rules are. You know, we have a rule. That we're to measure ourselves, and we're to measure ourselves according to this rule. Now, the blessed thing about our rule is this. The rules, the rule is the same for everyone. Think about it. With the Lord, there is equity. In other words, fairness. In the world, there's no fairness. You know, when your kids say life isn't fair, you know what you should tell them? Welcome to the real world. That's the way the world is. The world isn't fair. They don't care about fairness. Get used to it. Learn to live with it. But you be fair and honest. But God is. 
You know, we live in a sin-cursed world, so there's no fairness in the world. But God is. Uh, his rule is the same for everyone. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it don't matter if you're Jewish or Greek. And that covers everyone in the world. If you're not a Jew, you're a Greek. It means a Gentile. Romans 2.6, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. I don't care whether you're a king or a pauper. You're going to reap what you sow. It's going to be according to your deeds. For there is, verse 11, Romans 2.11, there is no respect of persons with God. Romans 3.10, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. <coughs> Excuse me. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as we think about in the church, in Colossians chapter 1, of course, he's, he, he talks to the, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. And then you go to chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, he says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or a Gentile or a Jew or whether you're considered a barbarian. I guess we'd call those rednecks nowadays. <laughs> I'm not sure what he refers to when he's Scythian, but, but uh, whether, whether you're a slave bond or whether you're a free person, it makes no difference in the church of God. God has no respect of persons. It's all fair with the Lord. And he will judge righteously. You know, it's wonderful to have the same rule for everyone. And the second thing, blessing of this is, the rule never changes. Again, you ever play a game you had the rules changed as you go? But you know, the rules of God never change because we serve an immutable God, a God that does not change. Matthew three three or Matthew Malachi three six, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You know, he said, I love thee with an everlasting love. He hated their sin, but he did not destroy them completely. Chastened them very severely, but he says, because I change not, you're not consumed. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. And his rule doesn't change. You know, our understanding of it may change. But we're talking about interpretation there. We're not talking about the rule. The rule never changes. 
In Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men merely swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So that's, you know, an, an oath settles the matter. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was poss- impossible for God to lie, we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in, into that within the veil, whither the forerunners for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God made a promise to Abraham, and then he confirmed it with an oath. You know, a promise from God is immutable. And then he confirmed it with an oath yet. When, when, when God, when Abraham, in Genesis 22, it's referring to Genesis 22 there, after Abraham offered Isaac, of course the Lord stopped him, and then in verses, I think it's verses 14 through 16 of that chapter, or 16 to 18, God made an oath. Now I know. And he, 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 he sweareth to Abraham that his seed would be blessed. And of course that, Prophecy goes further than just the Jewish people. It goes to the Messiah and those that would believe on him. And that's what he's referring to here in verses 19 and 20. Um, so, so we have this, we have this uh, promise from God, uh, from a mutable God, because God never changes. And, and it's interesting that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now why did he throw in the Israel of God? What's the name Israel? What's significant about the name Israel? Well, Jacob got that name when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, which was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. Christ. And then he called him, said, Thou shalt no more be called Jacob, but Israel, because thou hast prevailed and hast power with God and men. So the Israel of God refers to those that are saved. They have power with God. And that prom- those promises are to us, and they will never change we have an immutable god and the measuring rule itself the word of god never changes of course we have a a god that never changes gave us his word and the word never changes the measuring rule psalm 12 6 and 7 the words of the lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Psalm 105, verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Now, in Scripture, usually a generation is 40 years. And he said, I'm going to, he commanded his word to a thousand generations. That's 40,000 years. We're going to have a long time yet. Um, Psalm 119, verse 160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Uh, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. John 10, 35, If he called them gods, in whom the word of God came, then the scripture cannot be broken. Of course, Peter tells us in 2 Peter we have a more sure word of prophecy. In 1 Peter 1, 23-25, he says that we have the word of the Lord endureth forever. It's incorruptible. And those are just a few of the verses that talk about the word of God that never changes. There's a lot of people today that have no confidence in the word of God. That's the fruits of our modern multiplicity of perversions but our word God promised that he would keep his word and it will never change it will never change we have a more sure word of prophecy so we can have confidence in as we walk with the Lord that we have a rule that is true and never changes. Just as the giver of his word never changes. And so, you know, we should live to please God. You know, it's easier. You, you know, really, in reality... It takes the responsibility off of me. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't worry about what I was going to eat. I didn't worry about what I was going to wear. I didn't worry about who was going to buy, who was going to pay the electric bill. I didn't worry about any of that stuff. I didn't worry about whether the house was going to be warm. Now, I helped help make it warm lots of times with splitting wood and all that, you know. But I didn't worry about any of that. It wasn't my responsibility. My father took care of all that. And if we will live to please the Lord, it's his responsibility to meet our needs. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What know ye not? Your body is the temple of God, which is the temple of the Holy Your body, what know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you sort of just like the old man said. I shouldn't call him an old man, but he was an old man. Said to the man who wanted to take his car, 
It's not mine to give. My father gave it to me. It's not mine. I can't give it to you. So we can say to those who pressure us, it's not my life. It's not my life. It's the Lord's. I'm here to please him. Might God help us to be willing to walk with the Lord and to please him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time and your word tonight. Thank you for the challenge it gives to us. Thank you for the simplicity of these truths. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our everyday lives just to walk and to please you. Help us realize our lives are not our own. We belong to you. You're our master and Lord. And help us just to serve you, be faithful to you. Thank you again for your loving. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.